Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devi Kagirish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. Recently, I was at the Locarno Film Festival in Switzerland, where I participated in a fascinating experimental event called The Future of Attention, curated by Rafael Dernbach, a researcher at the Università della Svizzera Italiana. It was a continuous 24-hour live talk moderated by three hosts, including yours truly, and involving a new guest each hour. The event began at noon on August 10th and went on all the way to noon on August 11th. Attendees were invited to sit, lounge, or even sleep in the audience whenever they wished. The idea was not just to discuss the workings of attention in contemporary film and media culture, but also to actively experience and challenge the various ways in which we pay attention over a sustained period of time. I hope you've been following along the last two weeks as we've shared excerpts from my hosting shift at the event, featuring conversations with filmmaker Helena Whitman, curator Giovanni Carmine, this year's Golden Leopard winner Julia Murat, and others. Next up is a very exciting guest, artist, filmmaker, and critic Hito Styrel, who talks about teaching on Minecraft during the pandemic, maintaining techno-optimism in very pessimistic times, and the distinction between voyeurism and attention. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Hito. It's a great pleasure and honor to have you here. So thank you for making time and being here. Thank you so much for having me. And you don't need any introduction, but I've been asking every guest to just describe what they do in a couple sentences. I find it interesting as an exercise. So I'm wondering if you could do that. Uh, yes. I try to do things. I experiment in different media and formats, period. Great. All right. Let's run with that. So I was just talking to Julia and Giovanni, and we had kind of a long discussion about optimism and cynicism, especially while making and curating art within a capitalist world. And I thought that this would be an interesting question to ask you because your work deals with techno-optimism often, but you also bring a critical techno-pessimism, you know, to the, to the way that you view um, the world. At least that's my experience of your work. And uh, we were just talking about these two possibilities that you often have to confront. One, that institutions increasingly absorb their own critique um, and we were talking about how institutions, for instance, do diversity panels, for instance, and that becomes a way for them to signal that they are participating in the critique, in their own critique, but it also is a way of reinforcing their legitimacy without often uh, changing structurally. But then if you give in to this idea, this totalizing idea that there is no, nothing outside of capitalism and that institutions are all powerful and there is no resistance that isn't like immediately absorbed by the system, that seems like giving in to a kind of cynicism that helps perpetuate the system. And so I was wondering how in your work you navigate these poles. Um, and I, you know, I was like thinking of this Gramscian idea of, um, you know, uh, optimism of the will and pessimism of the intellect. It's something I return to personally, but I'm wondering if what your sort of worldview is. Well, I 
try to always be team optimism. Um, there is also this saying about some kind of <laughs> optimism in desperation. This is probably what it's about. But I think it's important in general not to give in to cynicism, even though it's very tempting. Because, I mean, how are you going to go on? And of course, I mean, the situation you're describing is probably it's a, the description is correct. Um, but if you were to dwell on it all the time, it would be too depressing, I guess. <laughs> you know, so sometimes you need to take a step away, I guess. And at least try to imagine a different starting point. You know, yeah, these are the given conditions. Diversity washing does happen. It's a bit annoying. I mean, it's very annoying. Um, but on the other hand, I cannot spend 24 hours a day, you know, dwelling on it. Uh, it's a given situation. Mm. And you try to escape it as much as possible. What did you what do you mean by optimism uh, optimism of desperation? Well, I mean things are not only not great but very problematic at the moment. Uh, yet it's not an option to simply give up. It's just not an option. It's a luxury, basically. Mm -hmm. Being cynical is a luxury that one cannot afford at this point, I mm -hmm. guess, or that only certain people can afford so um in in a way there is no choice <laughs> we have to be i have to be optimistic mm -hmm. there's no other way and how does technology come into that as um technology is something that reinforces and reifies like the present but also opens mm -hmm. up possibilities for the future <laughs> Technology is an operating system, right, for this world. And for me, it's interesting because parts of it are emerging. I mean, they are being made as we speak. And in some tiny way, it's possible to co-create technology. But I think it's really rather about this general idea of technology being an operating system mm -hmm. and as such a kind of software of organizing um things so in that sense it's interesting but um i mean you've all often spoken about how technology i mean this kind of attitude of techno optimism mm -hmm. being something that oh that yeah that's also it's like diversity washing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah i yeah. mean there is this idea that technology as such just because it exists and develop is going to create some positive change uh that's not going to happen period we had i mean i have the maybe luxury of being so old that I have witnessed several of these, you know, waves of optimism and cynicism and crashes also starting from, oh, even before the first dot-com crash. So basically I'm used to these um, pumped up illusions crashing and there's always the same kind of teleological mm. um, narrative to it, right? 
technology exists, it's going to save the world, it's going to be automatic, like a Hegelian train driving into the future. And um, so just jump on the train, you know. And actually, this is not what happened, um, and it's not what's going to happen. But but still, it's interesting, it's even important, even mandatory to some point to engage with technology because someone has got to understand it also, right? Someone has got to understand how these things work and how they happen and the context in which they happen and their uh, conditions of production, but also very, very simply the the way it works. And also it's important to keep experimenting with you know, all sorts of technological aspects. Uh, yeah. And it's still, I, I still enjoy it. Yeah. Um, you know, you obviously also teach and you're involved in, in academia. And I was wondering how the, during the pandemic, the experience mm -hmm. of um, teaching virtually, mm -hmm. uh, how that maybe affected your artistic practice and also how that maybe challenged any assumptions or ideas you had about technology? Did you experience some kind of change during this time? Yeah, of course. I guess most people did. Um, I had the impression that shifting uh, teaching schedules online would not make a big difference, but it did, mm -hmm. much more than I anticipated. So losing face-to-face -face contact really did have a large impact on the group and how people related to one another. I was not expecting that. Mm. Um, but the ramifications for other parts of my practice, like production, were even bigger. You know, mm. just a complete collapse of any sort of supply chains or basically any sort of predictability time-wise, mm. right? You didn't know what the situation was going to be three weeks from now. So basically that created most havoc. Um, but was there anything that was also liberatory or that opened uh, up new possibilities that you've now taken with yourself? Well, we did a lot of experiments in teaching, being online in different online environments and worlds, and that was fun to some degree. Um, yeah, so basically... We did a lot of hijacking of existing online spaces and environments and did theater performances in there and so on and so on. Mm. But, I mean, there, there's a limit right. to these things. Yeah. I mean, I was reading about how you used Minecraft um, in your classes, yeah. uh, you know, mm -hmm. as, a, as a space that allowed not just for connecting virtually, but also creating virtual spaces and yeah, of course. and I was wondering if you could talk about that experience. Yeah, um, many of my students grew up with Minecraft and um, I think it's a very interesting environment. I mean, especially in creative mode because you're also able to create your own set very easily, but you're also able, I mean, Minecraft is a very interesting template to think through extractivism, you know, and how this is organized. Um, but I mean, just very simply, you can create your own set, you can inhabit it, you do, you can do whatever you want. You can spawn as many cats as you want. <laughs> I mean, it's great. What else do you want? You know? Uh, 
what do you it's, say a little more about the extractivism? How how did Minecraft illuminate that for you? Well, Minecraft is based on the idea to to first start extracting raw materials and then processing them and then creating worlds with them and opening up new possibilities. Mm -hmm. But this is the base. Uh, the base is an idea of extractivism, um, meaning you, you need some wood, etc., etc., and then you can create, basically, like in, in the Neolithic, you're able to create uh, metal, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But how, is that specific to the virtual platform in any way? I mean, that's just uh, mm. generalizable to, to the process of production of any kind? Maybe, yes, of course. I mean, it's also generalizable able to uh, many digital platforms, right? Only that the raw material is different mm -hmm. with behaviors or patterns or any other kinds of data. Mm -hmm. So basically, while you try to extract on Minecraft, you're being extracted. Even though I think that, let's say, data extraction on Minecraft is less intense than mm -hmm. on other platforms, but I mean, in general, yes, it's generalizable. Well, you know, the use of Minecraft is also interesting to me because this is also something we were discussing earlier, this attempt during the pandemic to recreate mm -hmm. conditions of the real world virtually, to, so uh, achieve like verisimilitude and accuracy. And using something like Minecraft is interesting because, you know, it's not photorealistic in any way. It's actually very basic. Um, and that seems contradictory to the impulse of using Zoom, for instance, where you're really trying to recreate the experience of being face-to-face, -face, being together, seeing each other as you would in real life. You know, for you, what was maybe the benefit of using something that worked against that? And that was like, I don't know, would you call Minecraft a poor image of, of a kind? Well, yeah, I mean, it's low resolution, definitely. Right. But I mean, it is... Uh... It is very obvious that this is not the real world. It's a sort of abstraction of it. And for me, the most interesting project that students did was to stage uh, Brecht pieces in there, which also deal, of course, with alienation uh -huh. and V effects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I thought Minecraft was very uh, apt for this kind of staging and performance. Uh, theater pieces. Theater pieces, yes. And did you find them, speaking of attention, did you find them watchable, to put it in a very basic way? To some degree, yes. Yeah. I mean, the recordings are definitely watchable. The interesting thing is, if you're following live, then you're following them on your own camera, right? So you have basically the choice how to see them the distance, to choose the distance, mm. etc., which can also get very confusing because in a way you're inside the uh, the, theater, the performance. You can, can be inside as well, but it's interesting. And, um, I mean, I guess what does that offer that, what does that kind of reduction offer, the reduction of the Minecraft space? What does that lend to a theatrical performance or the performance of teaching or pedagogy? I don't know. I mean, at that time, there wasn't many other great options, as you said, except Zoom. So it was worth exploring other ways of being together virtually. But why not something like Zoom? 
Yeah, we did Zoom too. <laughs> but, I mean, why Minecraft? Because it's way more performative. I mean, you can walk around, you can build your own environment, you can basically um, build small models mm -hmm. of worlds. These are small exercises in world building. And mm -hmm. of course, they are very rudimentary, but it's possible, whereas on Zoom, Maybe not, or not in the same way. I mean, of course, you can always conjure up something verbally, but mm -hmm. it's not really the same. I mean, uh, something, again, what we were discussing earlier was like, whether it is important to treat the virtual experience and virtual platforms as something specific, not a substitute for, you know, real life experiences, but to actually exploit Mm -hmm. the specificity of these technologies to create something that is distinct um, and, you know, and is not like constantly moving towards photorealism, which is what happens, has mm -hmm. happened with like digital innovations in cinema. It always tends toward photorealism as opposed to tending toward, you know, an aesthetic specific to this technology. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering you know, your thoughts about that, like when you are especially creating with like artificial intelligence or uh, glitching and, and using these kinds of I don't modes. think there is any sort of prescriptive aesthetics for that at all. I mean, also at the moment, I'm not really thinking about these purely digital environments because <laughs> I think maybe into the future it will be more interesting to try to think about mixed ones. Right, mm -hmm. where you have some virtual layer, but also a real layer, just because it's very obvious how also the experience became impoverished just by being uh, virtual. Mm. I mean, I don't mind personally, but other people. <laughs> yeah. You don't personally mind the virtual experience? No, not so much. But it, you do feel something is lost? Yeah, you know, it's not really about me. It's also about other people, about audiences, etc. Right. Yeah, and if people are just stuck at home with a VR glasses, in the best case, then most people tend to get very bored. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. Yeah. So, kind of changing tack a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, but the discussion that just preceded, we were talking about the role of desire. Um, we were talking about Julia's film. Uh, which is about a lawyer who moonlights as a cam girl, like a sex worker, and um, just thinking about, you know, the technologies of desire, which that, you know, that also fit into a kind of economy of desire. Um, and I know that early in your career, uh, you had some experience with pornography and sex work, and then, of course, you've uh, also made uh, some film work about that. Um, and I was just curious how that shaped your understanding of attention, um, which is like the broad topic for today, but um, shaped your understanding of, I guess, the power dynamics involved in attention as an artist when you're courting, mm -hmm. you know, people's attention, mm -hmm. uh, courting people's gaze versus mm -hmm. um, sometimes imposing the object of the gaze on them, uh, whether that fundamentally yeah shaped you in some way maybe <laughs> i don't know <laughs> it's a big question you know um I, I don't even know whether i always try to keep people's attention right it's about if if you if you try too hard 
then people will just lose it. It will be too too forced, right? So basically trying to um, catch a little attention but then letting go and opening up, you know, and also some empty space for people to reprocess mm-hmm. is maybe more successful. But when you when you're designing something like an installation mm-hmm. um, or an artwork, yeah. uh, are you? I mean, are you thinking of how people will navigate it? Are you thinking about it in terms of an infrastructure or space? Are you thinking yeah. of leading people, yeah. people's attention through it in a certain way? Well, I mean, you know, people tend to have bodies, and those bodies have certain needs in space. Uh-huh. And for example. Watching a film or a video for 25 minutes long, which is hung at MoMA standard height, uh, with headphones standing, you know, at the cable distance in front of the monitor, that's not a happy situation for anyone, not even for the television. I mean, it's just, it's just hopeless. Mm. So in that sense, people need to be able to take time with time-based work, so one needs to create some conditions. At mm-hmm. the beginning, I tried to create nice conditions, but then again, I thought maybe it shouldn't be so nice after all. You know, depending on the content of the work, sometimes it should be also a bit uncomfortable mm-hmm. and painful. But you know, these are always uh, considerations which relate to the work in question. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. You know, another way in which we can think of attention, I mean, not just viewer engagement, but also something we were talking in yesterday about in yesterday's discussions was drawing attention to something, particularly something that is elided, um, mm-hmm. like in mainstream media or culture. Um, and your work is often political, you know, sometimes even has an investigative aspect to it. Um, so is that something you think about as well, uh, about needing to prioritize or like your your work as a mode of prioritizing objects of attention yeah but it doesn't work you know if you just point with the finger on something and say look no one is gonna look so if you want people to look at this you need to point at that and they say look and then people will see that you know just because out of spite because they don't want to follow the instruction right yeah, or you need to hide the thing you want to show between the thing you're actually showing. Mm. Because no one wants to be, you know, hectored and told to pay attention to A or B. Mm. So what does, I mean, what is that act of saying, is when you want people to look here, pointing elsewhere, what does that look like in artistic practice? Depends. I mean, there is no protocol or no algorithm. But I think if you are too direct or forceful in trying to, you know, gain attention, 
direct attention mm -hmm. or even impose attention is not going to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, people are, most people want, I mean, there is a happiness in trying to figure out for yourself, right? And if you give people an opportunity to do it and even to come up with several solutions in relation to a situation, then, you know, the leading into this kind of setup will be much more enjoyable also for people, you know. Yeah. This kind of and, relates and also, yeah. you know, in this look situation, what is it achieving in the end? Then people will have seen. Mm. X or Y, and then what? You know, mm. that's that's very often the case. But the unmasking, um, the act of unmasking is seen as something which is valuable in itself. Mm. But usually it's not. It's just an act of unmasking, nothing else. And nothing is automatically falling from it, mm -hmm. right? Which is somehow seen as a given. If you... If you were to know that situation A exists, then act B would happen. Act B never happens, you know. But object A becomes um, becomes subject to intense voyeurism, for example, hmm. you know, or scopophilia. And is that a question you ask yourself? And what? Yeah. Or like exactly. then what? Yeah, then what? Um, and. Are you trying to, when you create a work of art, are you trying to make something, like make B happen, like you were saying? Um, I mean, do you think, do you see it as a failure or a shortcoming if the experience ends with that experience of voyeurism that you just described? I mean, is there, a, is there something like utilitarian to the way you think about art as well? No. Or, or you wanted <laughs> really. to provoke something beyond no. just like visibility uh no um also i mean i certainly don't try to think about the audience in a physical way but on the other hand my loyalty is much more with the situations i'm trying to describe right so basically there's also this whole other um direction I mean, I'm dealing with a situation. Mm. How can I be faithful to it somehow? Can, how can I not betray it by showing it, etc.? So this is in a way much more important to me. Mm. I mean, is there? Could you speak with reference to a specific project uh, where where you're negotiating this question? I think in all documentary projects, I'm negotiating mm. it because you. If you, once you work with real people, then you have some kind of responsibility also of not showing things. Mm. Yeah. And what about working within institutions, which I know you, you talked about a lot, uh, but working within institutions and doing that act of unmasking, often unmasking the institution from within. Mm. Um, and like we were just talking about diversity washing, but I also think that that is sometimes too totalizing. I mean, this this idea that you can't unmask an institution from within that mm -hmm. doesn't leave us with many options. Yeah. And you you do it in a very in very provocative ways. So if you could speak about that, 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting because this is a area in which things started suddenly happening. I mean, I was very used to nothing ever happening. <laughs> But then suddenly there was a dynamics when institutions were under so much pressure, mainly through social media, not anything else, that they felt the need, in, in some cases, in some minor or maybe even major cases, to transform from within to some degree. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, that was a surprise. But it happened. And how did that, I guess, motivate you as an artist? <laughs> you know, I have, I'm coming at this from a very different angle, from the angle of film theory, which tends to surprise people, because I was sort of taught that if you put a camera into a situation, you have to consider basically the whole conditions of production, mm -hmm. it's not only about the content of the image, it's about how much does the camera person get paid, who is the camera person, mm -hmm. where is the stock going to, what, what is the lab, what kind of technology does it employ. This whole, it was called apparatus theory, mm. something which has been forgotten, but this is informing my idea of institution, right? Mm. The institution is an apparatus, so you can just look at the painting at the wall, but you need to ask, how was the wall built? Uh, what is the, who is the sponsor whose name is written mm. in this upper left-hand corner, etc., etc.? But it's motivated by the same idea of, you know, taking account of the whole set of conditions in a, in a space which gives something to see. Mm. But, you know, what, what you said earlier about uh, this, it sometimes getting reduced to something scopophilic, when you mm -hmm. work with images, like as a visual artist, yeah. there is always that danger, right? That because you're working with representation. Yeah. And somehow representation, and particularly in our world today, if I may use that broad term, visual representation is so overemphasized, almost to the exclusion of that kind of bodily or structural or material understanding. Yeah. Um, and is that like a concern when you're work working with images and how do you work against that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, intensity and affect and violence are commodities, let's face it, no? I mean, in the area, era of fast circulation, mm. uh, definitely they have a strong commodity value. And I try to avoid, you know, these very strong and intense situations. In documentary, I try to work with what I call weak news, with stories that basically mm. no one else would consider interesting because they just don't make the threshold. Mm. I think they are super interesting, right? Because they concern real people and are extremely complex, but no one else would think, or, or maybe not many other, the, the industry wouldn't think that they would be stories worth telling. Let's put it like that. Right. Yeah. So weak news plus context plus you know, other, other stuff. Yeah. So that, that kind of brings me back to what I was saying about like drawing attention, mm -hmm. uh, you know, prioritizing weak news is mm -hmm. a way of doing that. Um, and also I've, I've, I've been thinking about attention as a mode of protest, 
um, or, or how a lot of, there are many protest tactics or, or political gestures that trade on attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't just have to do with artistic practice. It also has to do with other choices you make in your life as an artist, mm-hmm. right? So for instance, making your choices, certain decisions public, mm-hmm. like for instance, when you turn down an award, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's a that's a decision. There are decisions like those that could be made in the private realm, but the choice to make it publicly as a public figure, as a way of drawing attention to something. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And are there are there moments where you negotiate between that private and public choice and think about where attention needs to be deployed versus where it is like your own personal, you know, ethics? I don't know. Maybe someone could give me some lessons on how to do that. I have no idea. <laughs> I need a tutorial, please. Yeah. I don't know. It's very intuitive, but I should maybe start thinking about it. But but yeah. you already do, do it so excellently. No, no, I just fumble my way along. I have no idea how to do this. Yeah, I mean, I can probably talk about ages, about, you know, how to montage things and blah, but mm. this I really don't know. Yeah. But I guess uh, maybe I'll, I'll broaden it. How do you handle being a public figure as an artist? By withdrawing as much as possible. <laughs> I mean, literally, yeah. But you, but do you feel that you're also strategic in, in when you deploy, like, the publicness that you have? I don't know. You think it's more intuitive than? Well, I mean, I I know that I for most parts I do not want to go public or be public. This much I know, mm-hmm. and then sometimes I don't. Yeah, but it even makes me feel uncomfortable to think about it. I feel guilty. I really feel guilty. Let's change the topic, okay? <laughs> but wait, what do you feel guilty about? I don't know. So, it's uncomfortable. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you said, I was reading an interview of yours where you were um, saying something about outrage versus organization. Yeah. Um, how outrage is sort of, you said that, especially the contemporary left, uh, prioritizes outrage over organization, and mm-hmm. that's one of the a political problem we have. I was wondering if you could elaborate on what you mean by those two terms um, and the distinction between them, because I think that feels very relevant to the discussion of um, attention. Yeah, I mean, outrage is basically the commodity value of a fast-traveling item on social media, let's say, mm-hmm. or any any kind of circuit. So the velocity, the impact, the clicks, blah, 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 all of them are intensified via outrage. But it doesn't do anything per se to organize a group of constituents, you know, that we would relate. Let's put it like that. It's a piece that shows uh, police violence uh, Mm -hmm. video, let's say. So, okay, it gets circulated. A lot of people are outraged. But how does this contribute or to what kind of organizational structure does mm-hmm. it contribute amongst audience? Per se, not at all, because it gets circulated via corporate platforms and this structure is not changing per se, right? 
Um, of course, there could be a second step of trying to organize this constituency. Mm -hmm. But um, usually what happens is that the attention span is so short, mm. whereas attention is a drawn-out process which necessitates you know, a lot of sustained engagement. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't happen, you know, because the temporal scales are very different. Mm -hmm. As an artist, I guess, how do you create the space for that kind of long contemplation? I mean, because time is really, mm -hmm. what you're saying, I think is very true. Um, this kind of outrage or the attention economy really relies on churn. Yeah. So. And escalation. Also. Yeah, yeah. And acceleration. Yeah. So. Yeah. But also pushing of boundaries of permissibility, etc. Yeah. So. But uh, how, I mean, how do you. There are, for, for instance, there are filmmakers who rely mm -hmm. on certain modes to create that space of contemplation, whether, whether it's duration, whether it's stillness. Mm -hmm. For you, what sort of gestures are important um, to create that kind of contemplation that allows for something more than, you know, quick outrage and then you move on? Well, first of all, it's dealing with topics which... I think are just as uninteresting today as they will be in two years. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so there won't be any sort of sudden crash in attention. Mm. You know, you start out with something which you know is not going to interest a lot of people anyway. So, mm. But then you invest a lot of time. And I think that's for me the most important part to try to protect the time I need around a year to produce a work. And if I don't have that year, then it's not going to be good. Hmm. So to protect that time, to really engage with this uninteresting thing in detail, that's important. Because then hmm. also I think you can find the ways to interest people in things which they wouldn't consider necessarily interesting. So that is also something you think about, even when you're dealing with weak news, you are still concerned with how to draw people to it, right? I mean... Yeah, of course. I mean, I want... I think otherwise I wouldn't do it, right? Right. Yeah. So you do you do think about the audience as well. Yeah, but, but not in the sense that it needs to be, you know, this fast-moving piece of viral mm -hmm. news. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so one <laughs> problem with this kind of the fast-moving nature of news mm -hmm. and attention is how do you then comment on long crises? On what? On long crises, long, yeah. slow crises like climate mm -hmm. change, which is mm -hmm. dire and urgent. Yeah. But it's the kind of slow-moving crisis. I mean, it moves at different paces based on where you are in the world. Mm. Uh, you know, there are parts of the world that are already getting submerged. And, and mm. But I guess that, you know, how do you then... I think that for me, that's like one of the big questions of like the attention economy is it's so fast-moving that mm. it seems very difficult to sustain interest in the long crises. And it applies not just to climate change, but something like war, mm -hmm. too. I mean, if you look at Ukraine or, or anywhere in the world, um, you know, these are actually long crises, but we, we view them as ruptures because of the way our attention moves. Um, so I, I'm curious what, how you think about intervening in that uh, 
with art or is, is that some, even an ambition of yours? I don't think I could really realistically intervene in that. But the climate crisis is, of course, slow moving. But we are, I think the one of the challenges until now was that it was difficult to make it visible, right? Or to mm. pin it down to, you know, certain examples. But now there is so many examples that... I think it shouldn't be a lot, uh, shouldn't be very difficult. It's not very difficult anymore. But even if it's more visible... And, and in yeah. war, maybe it's almost the contrary. Mm. I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound cynical. It's definitely way more complex, but um, there's too much visibility on some kind of details so that the structure somehow... Uh, moves to the background, mm. right? In Ukraine, we are hardly seeing any pipelines, any infrastructure, any sort of logistics. Mm. But of course, you know, as in war reporting or war photography, a lot of destruction, a lot of uh, catastrophe and injury. So in that way, it's kind of the opposite example of some uh, aspects being made being over-visualized also somehow. Right. Um, it also kind of relates to the question of empathy, which is also a theme of, um, you know, the of the base camp here. There's there are installations that are kind of dealing with the que question of empathy and love, and I've been thinking about how that relates to attention. Um, I mean, what you're describing, this overemphasis of certain aspects, often it has to do with this idea of, the moving image as a vehicle for empathy, right? Like to get people to empathize. But mm -hmm. that is often a very limited goal. Yes. Um, I mean, empathy doesn't necessarily lead to a structural understanding or structural change. No, it's also sometimes, I mean, if I see it, empathy as such is, of course, much more vast, you know, but yeah. if I see it in the context of, let's say, war photography, then it can also be a drug, right? A mm. sort of neurochemical drug to experience some kind of second-hand intensity. Right. And this is how it's being deployed in many cases, you know, just as a, I don't know, dopamine hit or something. Yes. So when you work with the image... And I think yeah. the second-hand aspect may be interesting, right? Because... In relation to VR, I've once described it as an Airbnb of empathy because you're being made to feel as if you were in someone else's shoes. Um, you know, you rented yeah. those shoes and now you feel like the person, but you are not the person. And in a sort of flattened way, that's also the case, of course, with, yeah. you know, very intense um, bits of reporting. Uh, it's secondhand. It's... It's an Airbnb. Yeah, you can exit it. Yes. And yeah. but often you can exit it feeling that mm -hmm. you have done something. Like it gives you the illusion of having done something by feeling, for instance, guilt or yeah. momentary, but it's it's not in any way actionable. Mm -hmm. Is is that sort of also what you're yeah. And so when you are working with images of real people, like you said, mm -hmm. when you're working with documentary images, I guess how do you work against that? Airbnb feeling because at the end of the day art I mean 
art can be really permanent and enduring, but the experience of art is time bound. Mm -hmm. So how do you resist that Airbnb structure? Well, I try to avoid using those very intense bits, you know, violence, for example. I mean, I, I'm not tot completely avoiding it, but I avoid trading in it, right? And emphasizing instead... A bit more quiet modes of engagement. Like, I, I, I was wondering if you could talk in relation to the installation you have here, Social Sim, mm -hmm. which is which is quite interesting because it is, you know, it, it's sort of about police violence, but it isn't images of violence, right? It's actually images of dancing with, with the discourse. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Oh, that's a mess. That's a real mess, this work. I don't know how it hangs together. I'm really... <laughs> I don't know. We'll be the judge of that. Okay. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the, the, it has a story, but if you verbalize it, it's completely, it doesn't make any sense. So um, some kinds of avatars or bots get thrown into a situation which turns out to be a museum and they are supposed to recuperate a painting, a missing painting, which is supposedly by Leonardo da Vinci. Mm. But then there's a lot of budget cuts and they end up, you know, being basically rogue mercenaries and having to earn their way. And then they become performance artists in this museum and perform social simulations, mm -hmm. for example, infection scenarios or police violence scenarios or any kind of, you know, they are just for hire. Mm. Mm. They're proxies. They are proxies, yeah. And then there is a lot of, you know, subplots. Turns out that one of them is being remote controlled by a real actor mm -hmm. who is out of a job because of pandemia. And now he has to learn how to drive, you know, avatars using uh, basically f face recognition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he is, I mean, he, he is a real TV cop. A uh, very famous one, and but he's out of a job now. So this is in real life. He's in in real life. He's out of a job and no, had to in, do this. Or in real, no, in real okay. life, he's a famous TV cop. He was never out of a job. Uh -huh. These kind of things was always prioritized in pro production. You know, I think if there wasn't this kind of TV series, Tatort, mm. then the country would definitely disintegrate within two weeks or so. Yeah, I mean, just take away soccer and tatort, and Germany doesn't exist, you know. So basically, they had a very realistic feeling of how was it called? System relevance. Yeah. Mm, okay. System relevant, yeah. Interesting. Okay, well, I want to continue mm. the discussion, but I'd like to bring on our next guest. Thank you for listening to the Film Comment podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode from the Future of Attention at the Locarno Film Festival, featuring scholar and critic Kevin Bealey. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.